Welcome to Teachings in the Air. air, air. podcast with Jerry Oldman, coming to you from Hunkameenam Territory with a podcast series about Indigenous men's health and wellness. We aim to inspire, motivate, and empower Indigenous men to be sound in mind, body, and spirit, because that's what health means. This is Teachings in the Air with Jerry Oldman. Today's podcast is titled Free Yourself. And it's about um, our history in this country, you know, in regards to um, corrections, British Columbia corrections. I was reading about our people in this report, and it's talking in 1876, the Department of Indian Affairs. They made this law, you know, that um, entrenched complete prohibition of alcohol for indigenous people. Complete prohibition of alcohol. So they put that into the Indian Act. And this statement refers to offenses in which the mere presence of alcohol you know, you can be jailed and fined. You know, it's, it's ironic because in this country, they started giving away alcohol. The Hudson's Bay Company gave away alcohol to our people to get them intoxicated so they could practically steal the furs off the indigenous people. And for instance, as an example in Manitoba, one year, Hudson's Bay Company gave away, I think it's 2,100 gallons of rum to indigenous people in Manitoba. And we know that was happening right across the land because there were furs in British Columbia to the sea otter and the lynx, all of those wonderful furs that they were after. In Section 94A, and 96A, that in the Indian Act, it makes possession of intoxicants, intoxicants a criminally punishable act on or off the reserve. Section 95, in October 26, permitted Indians to consume intoxicants in a public place. 
But before October 26, you could go to jail just sitting beside a case of beer. My my late father got arrested for that law. He gave a hitchhiker a ride, was carrying a case of beer under his, his arm. And the RCMP pulled them over. They were watching and said, open your trunk. And they opened, my dad opened the trunk. There's a case of beer there. And a white man sitting in the back of my dad's car, sitting beside him, was waving at the officer and said, that's mine, officer, that's mine. He says, no, he cannot even be in the presence of alcohol. So I watched him cuff my father and take him to jail. Somehow he escaped the six months that many people went to jail for just being in the presence of alcohol, plus a fine. So that was uh, when I started to think of prison and my people. That was the beginning, and it was around alcohol-related offenses. You know, after 1951, when they all of a sudden it's okay to drink, but only in the pub. If you're caught drinking outside the pub, you, you'd go to jail. You'd be arrested. So what was happening, My one of my elders told me that people would go in the beer parlor and be drinking beer with both hands, literally, he says, because they can't bring it home. So they'd fill themselves up in the pub. Then they'd go out and they'd get arrested because they're intoxicated in public. So those laws were very racist and had a profound impact on the families all over British Columbia. You know, and um, after they said, yes, you can drink, but only in the pub. In my research, it says on April the 1st, 1943, there were 231 indigenous people serving time in jail. By March the 31st, 1953, there were 1,458 Indians in jail. You can see the big jump there from a hundred and something to thousands now going to jail. A lar- you know, an extremely large proportion of the law violators for which Indians are apprehended at this time involved alcohol. Directly or indirectly. And then now you can understand being in the presence of alcohol. One elder I was talking to from a Squamish nation, and I was talking to him about this. And he says, yes, I served six months in Ocala for one bottle of beer. I was reading newspapers that were written in the 50s. And I recognized names from my communities that were incarcerated for alcohol-related offenses. So this has been, you know, this we're now overrepresented 
in this country, but it already started way back then, like in 1943, before I was born. There were already people going to jail, and they started to have criminal records, and it impacted their lives. And of course, you know, once alcohol came in and it was legal for my people to drink, now they started to see violence in the family and in the community. So people were now getting charged not only with alcohol, but with assault. So there were, I remember, I'd say, where's uncle? Where's Uncle Charlie? And they'd say, oh, he's in, they'd say, they called his crowbar hotel or something. He said he's gone to jail. You know, and I, I never ever thought of my uncle as a criminal. He was so nice and so kind, you know, when I'm around him as a little boy. And all of a sudden he's serving time because of alcohol. When I think of that, that I guess I can literally say it destroyed his potential to have a good life. Just that law in the Indian Act that was enforced by the justice system in this country. The crimes of violence were mostly committed in the indigenous community. Not against white folks or Canadians, but against each other. And especially, it says in the report that I was reading, especially the spouses were now being assaulted. You know, I was reading observations by some of the authorities in the RCM police. And one of the RCMP said families of Indians have suffered because of these alcohol laws. There's a strain on cell accommodation, as one of the judges was saying. There's a loss of white trade in the beer parlors because now they were filled with indigenous people. Increase in crimes attributed to drinking. And one of the RCMP said, there's a lowering of moral standards of Indians. So now I could see the sort of like this um, attitude, because attitude means you're acting the way you think. The assistant commissioner said, wherever there are Indians in quantity close to beer parlors, considerable damage is being done, not only from a general but an economic standpoint. You know, when I reflect on the history of these were my uncles, my grandparents, that were being impacted by these laws, 
And I, you know, I've always believed that there's a first cause for everything, for human beings. There was a first cause for Jerry not to feel good about himself. It was my residential school experience. I didn't feel good about myself. So when I think of the brothers and sisters in a correction system in this country, whether it's provincial or federal, at times I've said to myself, those are the rebels. They're rebelling against racism in this country. Then I'd hear of some of their crimes of how they've hurt their own people. And I would um, get confused sometimes. I had relatives, I have relatives now incarcerated. And some of them have hurt people in a bad way. So it took me going to BC Corrections and seeing people working there that would change my attitude and say, yes, we can do something. We can do something to help these victims of colonization. <laughs> That's the only way I can look at it, by saying victims of colonization. I actually coined it as a post-colonial stress syndrome. <laughs> you know, we're suffering post-colonial, you know, and it's um, led us to make mistakes in our lives. So I got called to um, BC Corrections. And there was a reference to the calls to action from the TRC. And, uh, you know, honestly speaking, I was sort of skeptical if people would actually listen to these calls to action. But I learned since people do. <laughs> people have read those calls to action and say, let's, let's do something about it in the systems, in BC Corrections. So I, I got called by them to work with them. <laughs> I met wonderful people, wonderful human beings. And I've known other human beings, our people, and they were elders that were going to corrections. I met them in the Fraser Valley. And they're el real elders, you know, 70s, 80s, and they're going in there and they're saying we're going to help the brothers and sisters. So there have been people making attempts to help our relatives in the correction system of Canada. And once I've seen that, I said, okay, I'm in. You know, I'll, I'll answer the call. I'll come and help. I'll do what I can. So I was called by Lori Pruce to come in to help corrections and their calls to action in the TRC. And what, I remember one of those calls was to 
stop this over-representation of indigenous people in corrections. I've read newspaper reports, some of them saying 40% of some of those populations in correction centers are indigenous. Even though we're small, you know, we're small compared to the Canadian population. I think it was at one point there were 36 million Canadians and 1 million Indigenous people in this country. Shows you the seriousness, I'll say, of the problem. So I have a wonderful opportunity. All of us have a wonderful opportunity today. I have two special guests with me. And these kinds of workers, Jerry calls them angels, because they're working with people that sometimes our own people don't want. Ones that made mistakes against their own families or each other. I've seen people like that in the downtown east side in Vancouver, working with homeless addicted people, and I call them angels too. So I call the ones in my mind, working in corrections, angels, because an angel is a helper of the people, you know, protector of the people in the sense of morality. So the first one that I wanted to introduce to you today, and I want to want her to introduce herself to all of you, you know, in whichever way she's comfortable with, I'd like Lori Proust to introduce herself to all of you. Lori. Thank you, Jerry. Hi. Hi, everybody. My name is Lori Proust. I'm a Métis woman. My grandparents are from St. Eustache, Manitoba, and the old uh, Métis village, St. Francis Xavier in Manitoba. And I'm the Director of Indigenous Programs and Relationships for BC Corrections. I, I had worked in the criminal justice field and corrections for a number of years, and then I had gone away from it. And I had worked in Indigenous mental health and in the area of domestic violence. Um, specifically working with Indigenous populations in that area. And then I had an opportunity to come back to BC Corrections, and they offered me the position of supporting the Indigenous programs and helping the organization to build relationships with Indigenous communities and service delivery organizations. And they told me to, they offered me that position, and they told me to think about it over the weekend. And I called the lady the next day. And I said, I don't need to think about this over the weekend. I want the job. That's my dream job to be able to do that kind of work. Yeah. I know that the people that we work with, um, have, um, hurt people and, uh, done a lot of harm, but I also know from working with them and, um, having the opportunity to get to know them that many of them are so hurt have been hurt so deeply and um, repeatedly that I feel many of them are actually victims of a system that failed to help them when they needed help. And in their hurt and in their dysfunction, in their, in their dysfunctional ways of coping, they hurt other people. And um, 
But when we have the chance to work with them, I can see that a lot of them are really sincere about wanting to change and um, really embarrassed about being the way that they are and being where they are and in custody and are very much wanting our help. And I, I don't know, I feel it's a, a privilege to be able to come alongside them and to work with the staff at BC Corrections who, uh, who also choose to do this work. Thank you, Laurie. You know, it's, um, I can feel it, you know, just with your words and describing our brothers and sisters. I have another wonderful guest with me, and I, at times I call him nephew. And um, I'd like um, Mr. Knighton, I'll call him Mr. No, to introduce himself and tell us why you got involved in this corrections world. Hi, thanks, Jerry, and thanks for having me on here. Um, my name is James Knighton. Uh, my traditional name is Hachbita. I'm from the Itzishat and Dot First Nation here on Vancouver Island. Um, and I, I got involved in corrections. Um, I always wanted to be involved in law enforcement at some point. And um, corrections um, just was the position that came up first for me. And it ended up working out really well. I always wanted to help people. I knew that um, at some point I wanted my indigenous side to, to be, uh, uh, have impact on what I was doing with my life. And I didn't always see that in corrections, but uh, as it sort of developed, and I think I got into this position as corrections was sort of in its infancy in this transition, um, into this recognition of indigenous overrepresentation and understanding what we can uh, and need to do. And I think we're still doing that. Um, but I think that it's um, it's really taken a forefront in not only um, in my career, and um, it's really allowed me to bring uh, my cultural teachings and um, that full side of me that's important that I um, that I stand beside. Um, it's allowed me to bring that into my work um, and and have it make impact on uh, organization as a whole, and not just. Um, on a individual level where I used to work with clients. You know, as I was listening, I was thinking of myself and um, I'd actually done some work with corrections before I met Laurie. It must have been in 1989. I went to Bowdoin Institute in Alberta to work with Nietzsche in presenting um, addictions program in Bowdoin Institute. And it was there I seen a disparity, I guess you'd say, the injustice. And I'd met Cree men there that barely spoke English. And their friends were telling me that he didn't know what he was charged for. And he couldn't speak English, so he was agreeing with them. I said, oh my gosh, he's got a criminal record now. You know, and um, I thought, of course I had feelings about that, but had no idea what to do about it. 
you know, so I just helped with the addictions program and talk about stopping drinking and doing drugs. But that has always been on the corner of my mind of people. I don't even know how to describe it. They would go there and they would agree even though they didn't do the crime. Then they'd say, I'm going to do the time. Because I've talked to people that actually done that. Brothers. Then I went to um, Ford Institute. One of the indigenous workers asked me if I knew about sweat lodges. I said, yes. So he called me up to Ford and I looked at it and I said, we have to rebuild it. And he says, okay. He says, you know how? I said, yes, of course I do. So I, we rebuilt a sweat lodge and we, then I'd go up there every Sunday. And I knew, you know, the process going in, handing in my ID and everything from my pocket, my phone and things, you know. And I started to see the life they're having there. And it, to my surprise, the brothers there, once they got into the sweat lodge area, they stopped swearing. Seemed like they became themselves. And I had talked to them and I told them, you know, brothers, there's a protocol here and this elder is not going to break that protocol. Otherwise, they won't let me come back. You know, so I said, I want you to know once we close the door, it's our space. And then we do what we do in there as indigenous people. And they seem to just love that. They could be themselves in the darkness of the sweat lodge and hear the music and breathe the medicine. So I could see that, how that helped. Then I'd hear them one time I was walking away and I could hear them once they left the area. They'd start swearing at each other again. Then I thought about the energy there and I said, oh my gosh, can't be helped. That's what my thought was. I don't know till this day. It's just my imagination. I want to let you know that but that I'd been there and I seen the value of culture. So I'm going to ask Lori to, um, you know, to share with us what she's seen as working in the system. And maybe first off, you could reference what hasn't been working and then what you see as working to help the sisters and brothers there. <laughs> Uh, well, I think the the problems that we have are largely because um, Canadians as a whole have been the the truth of has been kept from us about the very dark and ugly history Canada's history and the treatment of Indigenous people. Um, Canadians haven't been educated on that true history and. 
we didn't learn it at school and people didn't talk about it and we don't learn it at work. There's many people that I've spoken with now at BC Corrections that said they never heard about that in a residential school or even the Indian Act until they started working for BC Corrections in their 20s. Um, so in the absence of truth and real understanding and proper education and the facts, there is a lot of um, ignorance, um, confusion, racism, stereotypes, and then discrimination and barriers. And so that's what's not been working. And what has been working, um, I think, for BC Corrections is the, the effort that they've been putting into educating their staff and very serious effort and um, not just providing them with courses, online training or classroom experiences, but actually providing them with opportunity to sit with the elders, listen to stories, listen to personal experiences of Indigenous people, experience culture, all kinds of wonderful um, healing ceremonies. And um, that, that kind of education um, that happens, that kind of learning that happens in partnership, in relationship, and through experiences with our Indigenous partners has been powerful. It's it's caused a major shift in our organization in the way that we understand now the problem of Indigenous overrepresentation and how we um, need to um, approach the work of corrections differently. Um, we um, one of the calls to action you were talking about um, is to educate um, people who work in the justice system and the correction system um, on the on on the history of Indigenous peoples, so that not only so that we can understand why um, Indigenous people are overrepresented, but also so that we can understand the the very important role that culture and connection to your your culture your community your indigenous identity like how powerful that is in helping people to um, start to feel good about themselves and good about who where they come from and who they who they belong to and um, they start learning those those ways of looking after themselves properly um, and watching that happen in BC Corrections, watching that change happen is, uh, is so exciting. I'm you know, really proud to be a part of it and really, um, I really think the organization is doing good work. We have a long way to go. We have a very long way to go. Um, we need to do a lot more in the area of improving our, our training and how we educate our staff. Um, but we're definitely moving in the right direction and you can feel the change. You can feel that like the spirit in the organization is very positive and people are very, as soon as they understand 
the truth, they it changes them and they want to be part of the solution and they are coming up with all kinds of ideas and and new initiatives and great projects to to improve the way that we work with our in, indigenous clients and our our partners the service delivery agencies and communities um, the the other thing that i think is really um, what's working is the Indigenous Cultural Liaison Program that we have in the in the in each center um, has uh, people who work there providing um, um, providing a cup of coffee and uh, and somebody to talk to and and um, somebody to talk with about. Um, you know what's what's happening for them what's bringing them to jail but also talking to them about their their families and their communities and reconnecting them with with culture the work that those people are doing in the correctional centers is so critical i i i believe that um we as a government a, a racist government a colonial government and successive racist governments and all of the racist policy and legislation that we have in Canada that was meant to strip Indigenous people of their culture and destroy the culture. Um, we ha- as now, as a, a government, as BC Corrections, I feel like we have an obligation to have that culture in the correctional centres so that the people who have been impacted by that when they end up in a correctional center, they have the opportunity to be reintroduced to the culture. Um, and I know it's effective. I know how important it is. I was just at one of the centers on Tuesday and I had an opportunity to talk to the men for a little while. And each one of them um, just began talking about how grateful they were for that program, that time to, to spend with the, the Indigenous cultural liaison, how grateful they were to have been, um, how proud they were of the, the drum that they showed me that they had made. And, you know, so I know they feel, I know they feel good there. I know they feel like they belong there and they feel safe and they're learning and just proud. And so that's another good thing that's working. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. James, what about yourself? What what are you seeing as the blocks to, to healing? And uh, I guess you could, what, what's that word? Um, you know, when they send people to these institutions, they say, we're going to rehabilitate you as a rehabilitation center. What are the blocks to that? What are, what are, do you see as the successes? Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, I think I want to build a little bit off of what Lori was saying. And I think um, that the education of our staff is important for a number of different reasons. Um, I think that very often we are forced to rely on the Indigenous people in our organizations or our clients to educate us on what has happened to Indigenous people. Um, And that forces those people to relive 
their terrible experiences in their life so that we can understand what has happened as a whole. And that's a difficult thing to do. And I don't think there's many other instances that we sort of have to force victims to relive their experience for us to learn. And um, so I think that this education and understanding um, it really plays a deep impact so that we don't have to walk through that mud with those people. And we can start from a place of healing instead of starting in a place of hurt. Um, and I think it helps to build those relationships and exactly with what those Indigenous cultural liaisons are trying to do is to start a relationship. I think when you talk about sitting down for a cup of coffee or a talk or a ceremony or whatever they are providing, they're building a relationship um, with that client. And I, those relationships um, can't stop there. They need to work within uh, with the organization and the organization needs to work with them and the communities to create those relationships so that we can um, continue to move forward as one, looking eye to eye and not feeling like we're in a system of hierarchy. And um, I think it's no different than when you, at the beginning of this, referred to me as your nephew or you have as you have in the past or when I heard Jordan say he's from a house and I start thinking, whoa, where is he from? Who does he know? That's important to Indigenous people, and I think it's important for BC Corrections and government to understand why that's important. Um, It's not just important on a business level. Um, Our relationships stem very deep, and they have meaning behind them, and they have teachings behind them that we carry because we're supposed to, and that's our oral traditions, is to keep passing those on to our people. Um, other things that are working and we're working towards, I think, um, it is a huge part of that communication and how we're trying to provide wraparound services and incorporating, um, all of these, uh, cultural pieces into their case plans and moving it out into the community and, uh, connecting them with our IJ, uh, Indigenous justice programs in the community. Um, and, and any other community resources to help help um, that continuity of service uh, for that person. And uh, I think that's a really important piece, um, especially for those that haven't, ha- as you said earlier, haven't had the exposure um, to their culture until they've um, come into the correctional center. Um, because uh, as we all know, we've, we've lost a lot due to colonization and, and we're preserving... Uh, in the best ways we can, what we have left, um, and I'm a, uh, I'm an example of that. I had to, I had uh, my mom had to move us out of our community. Um, she thought that was the best thing to do was to move us out of the community in order to um, prevent us from being a part of this system that we're talking about. Um, and it worked in that fact, but. I lost out on a lot of other pieces because of that. And I don't have all the cultural pieces that I would have had if I was able to stay. So 
I definitely can understand and relate to that. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you, because I don't know how many I've, I know I've, significant, I've heard that I went there and I learned about smudge. I learned about cold water, what they call a spirit bath. They learned how to chant, how to make a drum. And some of them took up carving and different things. You know, but I I really appreciate the education piece. Because I too believe as long as they're ignorant, they'll ignore the problems. And this is talking about Canada. As long as they're ignorant, they'll ignore our problems and what works for us. And as I was listening to both of you, I was remembering, um, Laurie, when you called me to these conferences at Harrison Hot Springs. I could see, and I, more than ever now, Laurie, today, I can see what you're thinking was, so can you tell us about the conferences and how you come to that? And Yeah. I love talking about them, so yes. Um, they... When I started with BC Corrections, uh, my boss came and he said, uh, we have these provincial training events and we would like the next one to be focused on improving outcomes for Indigenous clients. And I said, okay, but if you want to do that, we have to do it in partnership with Indigenous people. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we can't do it. Uh, it's impossible. I can't do it um, without Indigenous people leading us. If we want to learn about Indigenous people and how to work effectively with Indigenous people in Indigenous communities, you need to ask them. And he said, okay. And so we, um, I approached the Staelis people because Harrison Hot Springs, the, 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 the town of or village of Harrison Hot Springs is in the traditional territory of the Staelis people. And that's actually the location of their, one of their villages, old ancient villages, quilts. So I, I phoned them and I had knew um, Boyd Peters just a little bit. So I called Boyd and I explained uh, what I had been asked to do. And I asked him if he would be willing to help me. And he said, absolutely. And Kelsey Charlie joined him. Um, They sat on our steering committee. And then uh, what I wanted to do was, my vision was I wanted people to gain an understanding of, of, of history and why Indigenous people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system now. But it was important for me that I wanted them to have a good time. I wanted them to laugh. I wanted them to cry. I wanted them to have a very powerful emotional experience. And I wanted them to leave very motivated, happy and motivated. And um, I wanted, you know, there's so much to teach. But but we started, Boyd and Kelsey said, uh, let's focus on teaching everybody the overarching theme of the event was to work together with indigenous people we cannot any longer work a government organization branch or ministry 
we can never be successful if we don't start working in true partnership with Indigenous people. And so the best way for me to demonstrate this was but was to, to organize the conference and deliver the conference like that. So we made sure that we invited a lot of Indigenous people to the conference because at every table I wanted there to be, when we, when we had discussions at each table after a session, I wanted the conversations to be informed by an Indigenous voice. So we invited all of the Indigenous cultural liaisons to come and we invited some of our Indigenous justice partners that work in the community programs to come and we invited some of the Indigenous court worker staff to come and we invited elders from the Stahelis community. And our speakers were Jerry, Jerry Ullman was our keynote speaker. Um, and more than a keynote, uh, Jerry was the, the I, I called him the, the needle and the thread that would tie uh, everything together, would tie one session to the next session so that people could understand how all of these different sessions related to one another. Um, so we had, um, as much as we could, we had, we had song and we had dance. I mean, we talked about difficult things. We talked about racism within our organization. Um, we talked about the, 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 um, the, the truth of, of the past. We talked about trauma. Um, but in between those, those sessions, there was drumming and there was singing and there was dancing and there was um, brushing ceremonies. And we had the opportunity to work with Quikwikwelp um, Healing Village, the, uh, the staff, Correctional Service of Canada staff that that um, run the healing village, which is also there in Stahelis territory. They were partners in the event. Um, and the, what came out of that event was understanding that if you want to be effective, if you're a BC Corrections employee and you want to be effective and you want to make a difference when you're working with Indigenous clients, you must work in true partnership, in a relationship, one heart, one mind, together. Um, and that was really hard for, for a lot of non-Indigenous people. They don't, they're afraid. They are afraid to make a mistake. They're afraid to say the wrong thing. They don't know how to start the conversation. Um, uh, so at, the, at this event... Uh, they just saw how beautiful and how giving these Indigenous elders were and how there was, no, um, there was no anger, there was no blaming, there was no bitterness. There was just sharing and tears and a real desire to, to come together. And um, it was sad to leave, I think, hey, James, like at the end of the event, it was sad to say goodbye. There was real relationships that were built at that event. Um, and the people that left, left, there was lots of laughter for sure. We had a good time and there was lots of tears. Um, but at the end, people left very, very motivated to go back to their offices or back to the correctional centers where they worked. 
and to start making a change and start doing things differently. Thank you, Laurie, for sharing that. James, when you look back on what stood out for you on uh, these conferences at Harrison Hot Springs? Well, the first conference I, I was an attendee. Uh, I wasn't part of the organizing committee. So um, it was a very different experience um, from that lens. I got to sit back and, and listen. And it was the first time that I had heard you speak, Jerry. Um, um, for me, it was not as much about the content that was delivered because I was familiar with most of it in some sense or another, um, from my own family life, my own family upbringing, my own experiences. Um, so I could relate to a lot of that and it wasn't shocking, but what was different was being in a room full of my peers that had not. Um, and for many, it was their first time hearing all of this and hearing your experience and hearing um, the other presenters' experiences. Um, and I think it was so impactful for everybody that was there. Um, I had people coming up to me um, that I, I didn't hardly know at all, but wanting to know more um, and leaving saying, I'll never be the same person. I never understood all of these things and I'm not leaving here without doing something about it. And so it's changed the, the view of the people that we're working with and that outlook. And it just goes to show that how important that education is for people just to know and uh, know in a real way and not just by reading a news, reading something in the newspaper, seeing a clip on, on the television. Uh, it's coming from somebody real and it's a lot harder to dispute something if it's right in front of you. And they had no choice but to believe it and to see it and to feel it and to experience it. Fully. So I think that was a really big takeaway for me. I made a lot of connections there. Um, and, and it's not to say that your presentation wasn't powerful or anybody else's wasn't because it was. Um, but that was one of the biggest takeaways for me was how impacted my peers were and how that outlook changed moving forward and seeing the direction that BC Corrections was taking on making changes to improve the situation at hand. So that was the biggest piece for me. Uh, thank you. You know, I was, I'm just flooded with memories of those wonderful conferences, Let's Amat, you know, and... Um, I was listening to both of you. I was there's two brothers that presented their story. They literally took their heart out and showed it to the conference of what happened in their lives where they would slip into crime, criminal acts, and how it changed them. 
by having indigenous content. Actually, I heard them sing with hand drums, and I watched them, and I could see them identify totally as indigenous, just be, by being in contact with culture. And what stood out for me, even w along with that, was that our presenter the following years, a professional, had listened and was transformed by these two men's story. And she, at the following year's conference, she said, I was here last year, and I'm going to talk about privilege. And she mentioned the town she's from, and she said that presenter is from the same town, the same age, and were from the same town. And she said he ended up in prison. And I went to college, I went to university, and she says, I understand privilege today. And that was so profound for me to hear someone admit it and to compare themselves to someone whose life was totally destroyed because of the colonial experience. And I thought, how powerful is that? And I remember that evening I was presenting and I was so impacted by that presentation. Just out of the blue, I said to all the men in the longhouse at Kui, these are corrections people. I said, all you men stand up. And when I count to three, I want to hear you say, I love you, mom. I love you, mother. So I counted to three and the men done that. And I remember after that session, one of the men came up to me the next day and said, I want to thank you. I said, why? He said, I haven't talked to my mother for seven years. And after yesterday's day and your ending presentation, I called. And he says it. I realized what a waste it was those seven years, that she was a life giver because my presentation was around life givers. And she said, my mother's a life giver. I said, yes. So it's been so wonderful having both of you with me today and going down memory lane. And I'm just so proud of the work that's happened with BC Corrections. And we have a short time left and I just wanted to give you both a chance to pick a group out there to give a message to. Maybe your correct fellow corrections workers, maybe mothers, maybe fathers, maybe sons or daughters. Someone to give a message to. I just want to give you that chance to say, uh, just give a message to someone that comes to your mind right now. So we'll start with Lori. Yeah, I would um, say to all of the probation officers and correctional officers and social workers and nurses and doctors. And if you want to be effective, if you really want to help people, Indigenous people, then what you should do, I would encourage you to get to know your Indigenous neighbors, like build a relationship with them, go and have a cup of tea and develop a friendship and watch watch what will come of that friendship you'll be amazed you'll never be you'll never be the same you know you'll just get to know these beautiful people in this powerful culture 
that um, the, all of the teachings that that come out of it will will make you strong and effective. And don't be shy. You just gotta you just gotta go. And Kelsey Charlie would say, you know, his mom used to say to him, "If you don't go, you won't know." As you know. You just got to go and you got to, so I'd encourage them just go try and build a relationship. And, and, uh, I know that that's all it takes from there. The friendship will grow into, um, really, really strong, effective, um, knowledge and skills. Yeah. Thank you, Lori. Nephew. Um, I don't know if this has a real target audience, but um, I think with um, with the topic at hand and talking about uh, Indigenous people um, overrepresented in the criminal justice system, and I, I think that leaves us open to um, Indigenous people open to a lot of um, criticism or bias or prejudice. Um, and I think a lot of times we don't even realize um, that we're holding those views and those and those values or maintaining them. And so often I, I feel like Indigenous people that are in a tough position don't even feel like they ever had a chance. And with an opportunity, um, it's so easy to show people they're so much, they're worth so much more than the bad things that happen to them and we all are and we can't define ourselves by those things um and so to keep your heart open and to give people an opportunity thank you i'd like to thank both of my guests today on teachings in the air and i'm going to say to the brothers and sisters that hear this or the relatives of those brothers and sisters that are in corrections, free yourself of anger, fear, and depression. Free yourself so you don't make the same mistakes again. Leave it in those places. Have the elders brush it off, go to ceremony. Leave that hurt there, and they will put it away where it will not hurt someone again. That's my message. And to BC Corrections, I say thank you for taking care of our relatives to the best of your ability. I know you've made mistakes. As my nephew says, we all make mistakes. So let's not be judge and jury on everything that's happened, but let's work together. Let's put our minds together to see what we can do for the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. So I'd just like to thank you, wonderful, wonderful guests. Again, it's been such a privilege sitting with you in this important discussion because this is about social change, how we change society. And it's by being compassionate with each other, being willing participants in each other's suffering that we can create change. 